Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Julian Fromm. If you just bow your heads quickly before we start. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for being such a good God to us. Thank you for the, the teaching and the training that you give us. Thank you for your word as we open it this morning. Open our minds and our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you'll please... Give me a clear mind and words to speak according to things that uh, are true and right and according to your will. Amen. Well, the title of my sermon this morning is Who Will Stand? And, um, you know, it was a few weeks ago that we had a feature done by Rod and it was on the SAS selection process. And it is interesting. I watched a documentary on the SAS selection process, and it's extreme. As uh, those of you who were here heard Rod talk about, and I thought it might be interesting because at the end of his presentation, he posed a question to us: "How is your selection going?" And uh, You know, it's interesting, after being through a selection process myself, and if you're wondering, no firefighter selection is nothing like SAS selection. (laughs) Those guys really are in a level beyond what is believable almost. Um, How is your selection going? You know, there is a heaven to win and a hell to shun, isn't there, in life? Let's take our minds beyond day-to-day living, beyond earthly realm into something which is greater than even our imagination, greater than we can comprehend. Our minds are finite. We can't understand the glories of this goal. But there is a selection process for us to go through before we are taken into the kingdom, isn't there? You know, the process I went through in getting in with the firefighters was to collect all the information available and to train in preparation for the selection process. And so what I want to do a little bit this morning is maybe have a look at what the selection process is like And of course, there is a time of trouble coming up which will test our preparation, how well we've prepared. And it would be good to know a little bit about that before we got there, don't you think? Amen. Someone has already done this process, this selection process before. You know, when I wanted to be a firefighter, I went and talked to a friend who was a firefighter and he got me dragging hoses around the firefighter yard and he told me all sorts of information and that was very valuable. There is one who has been through a time of trouble before us. Wouldn't it be an advantage to understand who that man was and what he went through and how he achieved success through that time of trouble? Who was that man? Well, that man was Jacob. 
And so with these two main thoughts, or maybe three, who was Jacob and what was his experience and, and maybe how he got through it, the how might be more up to you to sort out than me. Let's look at um, Jacob's life and his experience this morning. Well, the first thing I want to look at when we look at Jacob is his character. Character is who the man is, what he was like. And we can turn in our Bibles, and there's an amazing amount of information on what he was like, actually. You've got to do a little bit of digging to get it. But um, one word mainly gives us a really great idea. Genesis 25, verse 27 One verse, one word, in fact, gives us quite an amazing understanding and insight into who this man was. Genesis chapter 25 and verse 27. And the word says that the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. Now I want to look specifically at the word plain. At first glance, you could just go straight over the top of that. But when you look at the meaning of that word, it comes alive. Now, if you go to the strongest concordance, that word, and I've got no idea how to pronounce it because I'm not a scholar. T-A-M, TAM, number uh, 8,535 in the strongest concordance. The meaning of this word plain... Jacob was a plain man, means complete, whole, upright in a moral sense, perfect, simple, pious, innocent, sincere, undefiled, having integrity, sound, wholesome, plain, mild, placid, harmless, quiet. And you think, wow. Just absorb that in for a bit. This was Jacob. This is who he was. It's interesting if you turn over a little bit to um, later on in Jacob's life when he makes his defence to Laban, and we'll get into the story. I'm jumping around a little bit. And um, you can look there if you like, Genesis 31 and starting at verse 38. He says this is what his defence to Laban is when Laban accused him of being unfaithful. This 20 years have I been with thee, Thy ewes and thy she-goats have not cast their young, and the rams of thy flock have I not eaten. That which was torn of beasts I brought not unto thee, I bear the loss of it. Of my hand didst thou require it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was in the, thus I was in the day the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from mine eyes. Thus I have been twenty years in thy house. I served thee fourteen years for thy two daughters and six years for thy cattle, and thou hast changed my wages ten times. You just absorb that like we absorb the other words, which were synonyms, to plain. Um, That's a long time to be a shepherd out in the field, to look after those that would come and steal and kill, to be a faithful servant to an unfaithful boss. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 177. This is Ellen White's comment. Jacob, thoughtful, diligent and caretaking. 
Ever thinking more of the future than the present, was content to dwell at home, occupied in the care of the flocks and the tillage of the soil. His patient perseverance, thrift and foresight were valued by the mother. His affections were deep and strong, and his gentle, unremitting attentions added far more to her happiness than did the boisterous and occasional kindnesses of Esau. To Rebecca, Jacob was the dearer son. And I want to ask the ladies, if you had to pick a husband, wouldn't you pick a man like that? I wish I'd lived up to that. I may have to apologise for my life after. (laughs) You know, that's a pretty awesome sort of character, isn't it? What about Jacob's attitude to spiritual things and to God? Well, flick back to Genesis 25, if you like, and we find a little more of what Jacob was like. What was Jacob's attitude to spiritual things and to God? Genesis 25 and starting at verse 27. And the boys grew... And Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents, as we've already read. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sod pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall, I, shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. And just put yourself in that situation. We've got, obviously, two extremes in brothers. Esau coming in, as it says, faint from the chase. And... Um, Jacob sitting there with a stew on. What sort of presence of mind did he have? What do you think he was dwelling on? That he would all of a sudden make a deal with Esau like that when he comes in. He saw an opportunity, maybe as it were, and took advantage of it. What was on his mind? What do you think he was thinking about? What consumed him? It was a spiritual birthright, wasn't it? It was a desire of his heart. It was even prophesied that he would be the one to get that. And so when he saw the opportunity, he thought, ah, here's my chance, I'll grab it. Again from the pen of Ellen White, Patriots and Prophets 178, we get more insights into this Uh, mind of Jacob. Jacob had learned from his mother of the divine intimation that the birthright should fall to him and he was filled with an unspeakable desire for the privileges which it would confer. It was not the possessions of his father's wealth that he craved. The spiritual birthright was the object of his longing to commune with God as did righteous Abraham, to offer the sacrifice of atonement for his family to be the progenitor of the chosen people and of the promised Messiah and to inherit the immortal possessions embraced in the blessings of the covenant. Here were the privileges and honours that kindled his most ardent desires. 
His mind was ever reaching forward to the future and seeking to grasp its unseen blessings. Are you getting a picture of what Jacob was like? With secret longing, he listened to all that his father told concerning the spiritual birthright. He carefully treasured what he had learned from his mother. Day and night, the subject occupied his thoughts until it became the absorbing interest of his life. So what was Jacob's interest in life? It was a sole purpose, wasn't it? Spiritual blessings. He craved, he desired, he thought about spiritual things all day long. Well, what about Esau? We've been looking at Jacob. What about Esau's character? They were twins after all, weren't they? What was Esau's character and his attitude to God and spiritual things? Well, unfortunately, it was vastly different to Jacob. Genesis 25, 30 says, And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this, birth, uh, this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do me? You know, Ellen White comments on that. And she says that just a little bit of extra time. And he could have got food anywhere in the camp he liked. It wasn't as if there was a scarcity of food at the time. Jacob said, Swear unto me this day. And he swore unto him. And he sold his birthright unto Jacob. And what's the next verse? Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage and blenders, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. They couldn't be further from each other, could they? In their interest on spiritual things. Again, I love Ellen White's writings because it gives such an insight to us to understand who these boys were, who these men were. Again, from the same passage on 177, Patriarchs on 177, Esau grew up living, loving self-gratification and centering all his interests in the present. Impatient of restraint, he delighted in the wild freedom of the chase and early chose the life of a hunter. Isaac made known to his sons these privileges and conditions and plainly stated that Esau, as the eldest, was the one entitled to the birthright. But Esau had no love for devotion, no inclination to a religious life. The requirements that accompanied the spiritual birthright were an unwelcome and even hateful restraint to him. The law of God, which was a condition of the divine covenant with Abraham, was regarded by Esau as a yoke of bondage. You heard that before? Yoke of bondage in the law of God, a yoke of bondage. Bent on self-indulgent, he desired nothing so much as liberty to do as he pleased. To him, power, riches, feasting and reveling were happiness. He gloried in the unrestrained freedom of his wild, roving life. So who was it that found favour with God? Romans 9.13 says, As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. Hebrews 12.16, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Look at the enormity of the goal that Jacob had, the gift, the birthright that he strove after, that he thought about day in, day out. 
And look at the goal that Esau so easily wiped off his hands, as it were. One bowl of food, just for the moment. Didn't care a hoot. Didn't have any spiritual appreciation, we could say, whatsoever. What an amazing contrast for twins. Well, that gives us an insight into the two boys and to their characters. What about Jacob's time of trouble? Well, although Jacob was a godly man, an upright man, of, it would seem, almost impeccable character, he wasn't perfect. He had a character defect. It's interesting because... Bible names often were related to the character of the person. Esau means rough to handle. When he was born, he was given his name. So when he came out, he was that hairy that he was rough to handle. (laughs) And it's interesting when we look at um, stereotypes in our society, isn't it? Stereotypes, a big, burly, rough guy with hair and a beard is typically like, a, I sort of imagine, the biker type, you know? I don't know whether um, Esau looked like that or not. We know he had a lot of hair, but was there any correlation of a big, rough, hairy man who was a hunter and to what we see these days in stereotypes? And Jacob, what does Jacob mean? Jacob means to supplant it supplant, um, I looked up the meaning of that word and it means to displace, to supersede, to take the place of, to take over from, to substitute, to undermine, to override or to oust or to assert. These are all synonyms of supplant, to overthrow and remove, to topple. This is, ja- this is, this is Jacob's weakness, this area. So we've got, and I, I don't know, I just sort of picture a big rough guy and I've Jacob, you know, was an upright sort of man. He was a smooth skin, yet he was a manipulator. He took advantage of the situation, didn't he? Um, He was an opportunist. Jacob's time of trouble, stealing the birthright. That's where it all started. And we've looked at how the birthright was stolen, haven't we? Uh, sorry, we've looked at how, at the first instance, the birthright was, was stolen, but it was stolen a second time as well. It was stolen off his father. And um, I'm sure you all know the story really well, that it came time that Isaac wanted to bless Esau because he wouldn't be reasoned with. And he wanted to bless Esau. So he told him to go out and find a deer and to shoot it and to make some venison to come in to have a, a meal with his son so that he would bless him. That was the custom in those days. Rebecca, Ellen White says, divined what was going on. She was discerning what was happening. And so she went to Jacob and they, Jacob, with a fair bit of persuasion, agreed to the plan that they would steal the birthright off the father. And that's what they did. It's interesting, but when Esau came in after Jacob, that Jacob 
must have realised that the power of God was on him when he blessed. Um, sorry, when Isaac blessed Jacob, he must have realised that the power of God came upon him because when Esau came in, he said, "Blessing him, he shall be blessed." He wouldn't revoke the blessing that he'd given to Jacob. Esau was fuming; he was absolutely livid. And he vowed and declared that when his father passed away, the first thing he would do was to kill his brother. And so Rebekah and Isaac gave him instructions to leave. Isaac, this is. Uh, Jacob, sorry. Esau had married some wives which were really um, from heathen heritage and they were a real thorn in the side to the family and so Jacob was given instructions to go back to Laban and to find a wife from among people who feared God and so Jacob went back he was a faithful worker for 20 years and if you just skip over this 20 years very quickly we find that um, isn't it interesting to see how Jacob was the one who was a supplanter but that 20 years the tables were turned and Laban for 20 years was the supplanter to Jacob it must have been a a constant reminder to him as he was working of the sin that he had committed against his family you know Leah Rachel was replaced with Leah that's just a, a huge problem to deal with isn't it when you find out that you've married someone else that you had intended and worked seven years for um, the girls dowries were not returned to him it was custom in those days that a dowry was cried or that, or that someone could work for a period of time if they didn't have money for a wife and it wasn't for money for the family the the money was to be given back to the girls on their marriage as an inheritance But Laban selfishly kept that for himself. And so the dowries were not returned to the girls as was the custom. His wages were changed ten times because Laban wanted everything for himself. But despite all this constant um, battle with Laban, Jacob actually became quite wealthy. And I think I probably personally attribute uh, attribute that to, one, the blessing of God because he says that in the scripture and two because of his character of who he was he was a diligent man he was a hard worker Genesis 30 43 says and the man increased exceedingly and had much cattle and maidservants and manservants and camels and uh, asses and so much so that the situation became dangerous between Laban and his sons and Jacob listen to what they said in Genesis 31 1 and 2 he heard the words of Laban's son saying Jacob had taken away all that was our father's and of that which was our father's had he gotten all this glory and Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban and behold it was not toward him as before Jacob was so worried about this that he talked to God he went to God and asked for God's guidance and God instructed him to go home But he was scared to do that in an open way and he had to do it in secret. Well, when Laban found out, Laban pursued him and it took seven days until he 
overtook him and then there was a confrontation. It's interesting to look at Laban and who he was as well because we find in Genesis 31, 29, he says when they had this confrontation, it, it, it is in the power of my hand, do you hurt? What was Laban's intention towards Jacob? Do you think Jacob had a just cause to run away? Do you think Jacob understood what Laban and his sons were thinking towards him? This is the words of Laban himself. But it is in the power of my hand to do you hurt. But the God of your father spake to me yesternight, saying, Take thou heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. So what was the will of Laban? Somebody tell me. It, it was not good, was it? <laughs> what was the will of God? God restrained Laban. It's interesting because I go further down in chapter 31 to verse 43, and Laban answered and said unto Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, these children are my children, and these cattle are my cattle, and all thou seest is mine. So all that Jacob had taken away, he regarded as his. But for God's interposition, there would have been a really bad meeting at that confrontation. They made an agreement, they raised a monument, they spent the night with each other in, in a feast and then they parted never to return. Now another problem posed itself. Jacob had to meet Esau. Jacob sent messages to Esau to tell him of his return but no favourable message came back. In fact, there was no message that came back whatsoever except the information that Esau was marching with 400 men. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, it says. It seemed like he could not go forward and he could not go back. He was facing death. In both ways. What's the consequences if we went back to Laban now? Massive. What's the consequences if we went forward to meet the 400 men of Esau? Disastrous. It seemed like Jacob's burden might have been almost too much for him. It was his fault. It was his fault. It was his sin that had caused this situation. If he hadn't have stolen that birthright this situation would not have arisen. Patriarchs and Prophets 195, though Jacob had left Padanaram in obedience to the divine direction, it was not without many misgivings that he retraced the road which he had trodden as a fugitive 20 years before. His sin in the deception of his father was ever before him. He knew that his long exile was the direct result of that sin and he pondered over these things day and night, the reproaches of an accusing conscience making his journey very sad. As the hills of his native land appeared before him in the distance, the heart of the patriarch was deeply moved. All the past rose vividly before him. With the memory of his sin also came the thought of God's favour towards him and the promise of divine help and guidance. It's interesting. He was in this massively um, difficult situation, yet God had promised him twice 
Hadn't God promised him that he would return unto the land when he'd lay down and the, the ladder came down from heaven when he was first a fugitive? God said, I'll give you this land again and I'll bring you back here. And then again, when he saw that Laban's countenance wasn't as it should be towards him and he consulted God, God had given him direct instructions to come back. He had two, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord to go on. Yet now he was on this predicament where it was his fault and the whole encampment was jeopardized. Well, what did he do? First of all, he divided into two groups and he said, if one group gets taken, maybe the other group will get away. That sounds pretty logical, doesn't it? That sounds pretty reasonable. He prayed. He prayed and he claimed God's promises to him. It wasn't just a prayer, Lord, I need help, please get me through it. It was, Lord, you've said this and you've said this. Look at the trouble I'm in. I know I'm not worthy, but Lord, I'm relying on your promise, on your word to me. The next thing he did was send messages with gifts to pacify Esau. He's doing everything in his power, wasn't he? It's interesting, you know, works and faith, faith and work. You can't separate the two, they always go together. And then after he'd done these things... He felt the need to spend the night in prayer alone. He was lying there praying and weeping supplication to God and a hand touched his shoulder. And that place was filled with robbers and murderers and he thought someone was there to take his life. And so he wrestled and he wrestled and he wrestled all night. And it wasn't until the morning... that he found out who he was wrestling with. And we all know the story, don't we? It was Jesus. Because he reached down and touched his thigh and immediately was damaged and he was crippled. It was Christ, the angel of the covenant, who had revealed himself to Jacob. The patriarch was now disabled and suffering the keenest pain, but he would not loosen his hold. All penitent and broken, he clung to the angel. He wept and made supplication, pleading for a blessing. He must have the insurance that his sin was pardoned. Physical pain was not sufficient to divert his mind from this object. His determination grew stronger, his faith more earnest and persevering until the very last. The angel tried to release himself. He urged, let me go for the day breaketh. But Jacob answered, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Had this been a boastful, presumptuous confidence, Jacob would have been instantly destroyed. But his was the assurance of one who confesses his own unworthiness, yet trusts the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. It is written in Hosea 12.4 that Jacob had power over the angel and prevailed. You know, I was sitting in Sabbath school this morning, and... Um, it was a really good Sabbath school this morning, but all of a sudden I remembered that there was another quote that I hadn't put in today, and I want to share that with you too. This is, I learned something new this week as I was studying for this. I always find 
in the spirit of prophecy, there's words that I just have to go to the dictionary and look up because they're too big for me. <laughs> this, is, this is again from Page Arts of Prophets. It said, Jacob prevailed because he was persevering and determined. His experience testifies to the power of... Imp- and I don't know whether I'm pronouncing this correctly. You might be able to um, fill me in if I'm not. Importunate. Is that right? Is that how you say it? Importunate prayer. Was that Robin? I heard saying yes. Can you tell us the meaning of importunate? No, you can't. Yeah, I wouldn't have a clue either until I looked it up. Okay. What do you think it means, importunate prayer? Well, you know I'm going to tell you, don't you? These are synonyms for importunate. Persistent, insistent, tenacious, persevering, dogged. Unremitting, unrelenting, tireless, infatigable, stubborn, intransigent, obstinate, obdurable, pressing, urgent, demanding, and it goes on and on and on. This is how Jacob wrestled and pled with God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Now, I have something to tell you, a confession to make that I don't do that. And I need to. Now that I know about that, man, I need to do that. I want the blessings that Jacob had. And I'm allowed to do this because that's how Jacob got through. You know, as parents, we can get sick of our children sometimes coming to us and nagging us and being persistent. If we desire God at his word and we nag God for it, according to his will, it was his will, if we are tireless and unrelenting and tenacious and insistent, God will bless. That's how Jacob got through. Well, God did answer, didn't he? God intervened with Jacob in a dream to Esau and the brothers were reconciled. Now, there was still obviously a grand difference between the two, and they had different lives. They didn't live together. But they were able to meet, and they were able to make their peace. If God hadn't intervened in a dream to Esau, just as he intervened in a dream to Laban, it would have been another very different story that day. So, just to sum up Jacob's experience a little... Jacob, a righteous man, sought after God's spiritual gifts. He failed to rely on God, to wait for God's purposes to be fulfilled. He did not use God's methods. He faced death for his sin. But he was delivered through much anxiety, danger, repentance, diligence, and wrestling with God for the fulfillment of his promises. He was disabled. And it wasn't until he was a crippled weeping suppliant that he gained the victory and friends it isn't till we realize our crippled state that we can receive the full blessing of Jesus and the victory as a reward his name was changed to Israel I think I'd be pretty happy about that to carry a name like Jacob maybe wouldn't be so nice. I think Israel is much nicer. And the meaning of Israel 
is Prince of God. Genesis 32, 28, and he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. So, what are those who are going to go through the time of trouble such as never was to face? Well, really, friends, it is up to every individual to discover this for themselves. But let me just share a couple of quotes with you. Great Controversy 614 says, When he leaves the sanctuary, talking of Jesus, darkness covers the inhabitants of the earth. In that fearful time, the righteous must live in the sight of a holy God without an intercessor. The restraint which has been upon the wicked is removed and Satan has entire control of the finally impenitent. God's long suffering has ended. The world has rejected his mercy, despised his love and trampled on his law. The wicked have passed the boundary of their probation. The spirit of God persistently resisted has been at last withdrawn, unsheltered by divine grace. They have no protection from the wicked one. Satan will then plunge the inhabitants of the earth into one great final trouble. As the angels of God cease to hold in check the fierce winds of human passion, all the elements of strife will be let loose. The whole world will be involved in ruin more terrible than that which came upon Jerusalem of old. Those who honour the law of God have been accused of bringing judgments upon the world and they will be regarded as the cause of the fearful convulsions of nature and the strife and the bloodshed among men that are filling the earth with woe. The power attending the last warning has enraged the wicked. Their anger is kindled against all who have received the message and Satan will excite to still greater intensity the spirit of hatred and persecution. And skipping on a bit to 617. Through humiliation, repentance and self-surrender, this sinful, erring mortal, and she's speaking of Jacob here, prevailed with the majesty of heaven. He had fastened his trembling grasp upon the promises of God and the heart of infinite love could not turn away the sinner's plea. As an evidence of his triumph and an encouragement to others to imitate his example, his name was changed from one which was a reminder of his sin to one that commemorated his victory. And the fact that Jacob had prevailed with God is an assurance that he would prevail with men. He no longer feared to encounter his brother's anger for the Lord was his defence. Isn't that an awesome outcome? But what he had to go through to get it. You know, Jesus gives a new name to those who overcome and gain an entrance into heaven as well. Revelation 3.12 says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go no more out, sorry. I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. I wonder what our names will be. I wonder what name we will gain through our experience with God. So I want to leave a couple of questions with you. How is your selection process going? Who will stand?
have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABM Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973456 our email address is radio at 3abn australia.org.au that is radio at the number 3abn australia all one word.org.au our postal address is 3abn australia inc PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 22624 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. I was once a sinner, but I came pardoned to receive from my Lord. This was freely given, and I found that he always kept his word. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine, and it's mine, yes, it's mine, yes, it's mine. and the white-robed angels sing the story, the sinner has come home, has come home for there's a new name written down in glory. And it's mine, yes, it's mine, yes, it's mine. With my sins forgiven, I am bound for heaven, never more to roam. In the book is written, saved by grace, all the joy that came to my soul. Now I am forgiven, and I know by the blood I am made whole. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. And it's mine. Yes, it's mine. Yes, it's mine. And the white-robed angels sing the story. A sinner has come home. Has come home. For there's a new name written down in glory. Yes, it's mine. With my sins forgiven, I am bound for heaven. Never more to You've been listening to A New Name in Glory by the Heralds. Coming up next, we have Sandra Enterman. I wish for you. I wish for you, my child, all the joys that life can
We hope you enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lynchjourney.com. The song says it only takes a spark to set a whole fire going. And once the fire was lit in one part of Europe, it spread quickly to other areas. John Wycliffe had made a massive impact, not just in England, but further afield in Europe, in particular here in Prague and the region that was known then as Bohemia. John Huss was of humble birth and his father died soon after he was born. His mother sought an education for him and he was able to get admission to the University of Prague as a charity scholar. As she reached Prague with her son, she knelt down and prayed that God would bless his life, a prayer that was answered again and again. He soon distinguished himself by his tireless application to study and by his blameless life. Upon completing his studies, he entered the priesthood and rapidly rose to prominence, soon becoming attached to the court of the king. In a few short years, he was the pride of his country and his name was known all over Europe. Today, they've built a statue to commemorate him here in the Old Town Square. Several years after becoming a priest, Huss was appointed preacher of the Bethlehem Chapel here in Prague. The founder of this particular chapel had advocated as a matter of importance the preaching of the scriptures in the language of the people. At that time, there was a large degree of ignorance concerning the Bible, and Huss also believed that it was vitally important to preach the scriptures in the language of the people. At this point in his life, Huss came in contact with Jerome, who had proved to be his right-hand man until his death. Jerome was a citizen of Prague, and he had brought back with him from a recent trip to England the writings of John Wycliffe. The Queen of England at that time was also a convert of John Wycliffe, and she was a Bohemian princess, and through her influence, his writings were circulated at length in Bohemia. Huss read them believed their author to be a sincere Christian and believed the writings to be true. Huss's impact was growing, not just here in his homeland, but also in neighboring Germany. And soon news of the work here in Prague reached Rome and he was summoned to appear before the Pope. To go would be fatal. The king and queen of Bohemia the nobility and the government all asked for a local trial, but this was not granted. The trial of Huss went ahead in his absence, during which the city of Prague was put under interdict. This struck terror into the hearts of everyone. No church services could take place. Baptisms, funerals, weddings, those ceremonies that were so key to life in general were not allowed to take place. And through this means, Rome was able to hold sway over the people. The city was in turmoil and Sahas withdrew to his native village, but he continued to travel to the surrounding countryside where he was able to preach to eager crowds. When the danger and excitement had subsided, he was able to return to Prague, where alongside with Jerome, he was able to continue his work. 
During this time in Europe, there was not one or two, but three rival popes, all claiming to be the vicar of Christ. This abuse of power in the church was something that many men strongly condemned, Huss being one of the loudest voices. The emperor at that time, Emperor Sigismund, called for a council in Constance, Germany to settle this dispute once and for all, and also to deal with some of the new heresies arising from men such as John Huss that they didn't agree with. Huss was summoned to appear before the council and was given assurance of a safe passage by the emperor. One thing that stands out from this story is the prayer that John Huss's mum made with him as he was on his way to university. I want to encourage you, if you're praying for a child, if you're praying for a parent, to never give up in your prayers. The prayer of John Huss's mother was answered many, many times over in ways that she couldn't have even imagined. Maybe you're praying for your children, maybe they're on their way to school, maybe you're praying for a loved one. Keep them in prayer and never think that our prayers will go unanswered. God does hear and God does answer our prayers. Episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. It's time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. The buzz on beverages. Caffeine. Are the perks worth the price? Caffeine is the world's most widely used drug. Approximately 90% of Americans consume caffeine in some form every day. Is caffeine a harmless habit or can it constitute a real addiction? Janice Keller Phelps, MD, shares how at an addictions conference where she guest lectured, juice and fruit were provided instead of the usual fare of coffee and tea. The doctors were furious, she said. Some of the most virulent reactions came from three of the speakers who were scheduled to deliver addresses. They flatly refused to start the program until they had their morning cup of coffee. The sponsors had to order up a special urn of coffee on the double, and we all had to sit around and wait until it was made and brought out before we could get on with the meeting. I was supposed to talk about addictions that day, but the scene we had just witnessed said more about it than I could have if I had talked all day. A large proportion of caffeine users exhibit dependence-like behaviors. Just one cup of coffee a day can create dependency and cause withdrawal symptoms. Caffeine has been called the bad habit glue because it can make other drugs like nicotine more addictive. There's real grounds for concern. Americans consume 587 million cups of coffee a day, or about three cups per person. The daily intake of more than half Americans is 300 milligrams of caffeine. 30% consume above 500 milligrams. Major dietary sources of caffeine are from coffee, tea, caffeinated soda, and energy drinks. It's also found in varying amounts in chocolate, cocoa, and caffeinated juice drinks. Caffeine-spiked water, alcoholic beverages, and even gum are now available. Many drugs, especially weight control aids, alertness tablets, 
pain relief medications, diuretics, and cold and allergy remedies also contain caffeine. While caffeine can serve as a rescue medicine for an occasional headache or migraine, repeated usage can cause rebound headaches when stopped or overused. Caffeine causes metabolic mayhem by injecting stress hormones into the system. It manipulates dopamine for a quick lift, but it also can cause an increased risk for depressed mood and mental fog later on. How? Caffeine increases cortisol, a stress hormone, which at persistent high levels impairs a key memory and stress-regulating center in the brain, the hippocampus. Caffeine uses chemical trickery to induce a state of alertness and wakefulness that finally results in fatigue and depression. Much like a plastic millionaire uses credit cards to borrow large amounts of money that must be paid back at greatly inflated interest rates. And interest comes due quickly with drug-induced energy and alertness. Symptoms of repeated caffeine stimulation and withdrawal are headache, fatigue, insomnia, decreased energy and alertness, drowsiness, depression, difficulty concentrating, irritability, and mental fog. Flu-like aches, nausea and vomiting, muscle pain and stiffness can also occur, leaving you craving more caffeine and creating a vicious cycle of dependence. The poor sleep induced by caffeine fuels weight gain, poor blood sugar control, stress, and worsening of fibromyalgia and musculoskeletal pain. We're getting buzzed by the bottle. Caffeine dependency can form at a young age, usually from caffeinated soft drinks. One quarter of American beverages consumed are soft drinks. That's about 658-ounce servings per capita. Teen consumption is the highest, with males drinking an average of three 12-ounce cans a day. The mix of phosphoric acid and sugar, even without caffeine, is not good for the brain, bones, or body at any age. A daily 12-ounce soft drink adds 75 cups of sugar in a year. It increases obesity risk in children by 60% and doubles the risk of diabetes in adults. Sugar-free drinks are often higher in caffeine and not effective in appetite control. Soft drinks drain stress-protective nutrients such as calcium, magnesium, and B vitamins. Eating a high-fructose or added-sugar diet over the long term actually alters your brain's ability to learn and remember information. Eating too much high fructose could block insulin's ability to regulate how cells use and store sugar for the energy required for processing thoughts and emotions. These studies show that a high fructose diet harms the brain as well as the body. Real brain and body benefits come from good nutrition and lifestyle choices, not a drug. Eating plenty of fresh fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and beans at regular mealtimes imparts real strength and vigor. Daily exercise increases energy, mental alertness, and is a powerful mood booster. Drinking at least eight glasses of water a day detoxifies the cells. Water improves circulation and organ health, reduces fatigue, controls appetite, aids digestion, improves alertness, and cleanses the entire system of waste. Keep a bottle of water with you throughout the day and drink it between meals. 
most people find that a good way to wean from caffeine is a gradual reduction over time. If you're a heavy caffeine user, work with your health care provider and implement change gradually. God designed you for energy, cheerfulness, and strength. He has provided spiritual and lifestyle principles to optimize your health. He will provide the strength you need to face life's challenges. He gives power to the weary, and to him with no vigor, he increases strength. Isaiah 40, 29. Pure water is vital to our survival. It refreshes and cleanses like no other drink. Will you enjoy more each day? Jesus Christ refers to himself and his word, the Bible, as the water of life, which he invites you to take freely. If you've not experienced Christ personally, you can receive his cleansing presence today. You've been listening to Balanced Living, presented by Vicki Griffin. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.